Dr. Brian. Dr. G. Earlier today, you were telling me that it's that time of the month again. It is the time of the month for us to record our podcast. I hope that's what you meant. Yes. In fact, it's the time for us to do our top three things episode where we discuss the latest and greatest psychological stories and research. Oh, oh yeah, that's that's right. That's what I meant. That's what I did prepare for tonight, so good. I know my top three things are my wife and two boys. My question to you is, are your top three things as awesome and amazing as mine? Well, you tell me. My top three things in my life are fried pickles. I think those are pretty delicious. My job as a psychologist, I, I think that's pretty good. And comic books. Checkmate. This week we are going to be talking about couple interactions, we're going to be talking about adoption and suicide, and we're going to be talking about boys' friendships on Family Anatomy. The hosts of Family Anatomy are psychologists, but they're not your psychologist. So if you need to talk to someone about family or mental health issues, you can get a referral from your family doctor. This show is for information only. Welcome to Family Anatomy, your source for parenting and relationship information with your hosts, Dr. Giuseppe Spezzano and Dr. Brian McDonald. You can find us at familyanatomy.com or over on iTunes. And let's get right into three stories of the decade the decade? <laughs> the decade. Not it's not really of the decade. It's, it's the best 2014 stories in the last 10 years? This is our first time. Oh, it was only four years. This is our first time together in the studio in a while. Because the last time, we, nobody could tell, hopefully, but the last time we did our episode over the internet. I know. And I kind of appreciated the two-dimensional form that you took. Really? Uh-huh. The 3D form is creeping me out a little bit. Yeah. Because of all my time at the gym, I'm bulging and three in three dimensions. No, it's good to be back in the studio. It's and definitely good to be we back. We are ready to start talking about. Well, the first story we got here is the emotional congruence with couple interaction, the role of attachment avoidance. Now, I I wonder if our guests play a little, or if, if our guests, I wonder if our listeners play a, a little game when we do these episodes with three stories and try to figure out who chose which story. Mm-hmm. Well. <laughs> <laughs> this would be an easy one. Emotional I, I, congruence I and couple up. interactions. Uh, but like I always say, right, we're, we're talking about the same issues in the family, whether it be the couple or the parent with the child. Right. Or, and you are all about attachment avoidance. I know that. <laughs> <laughs> well, we've got this first article from a couple of researchers from Utah State and Michigan State. And it's probably not a bad idea to talk about what attachment avoidance is. Well, it's a strategy earned, uh, learned early in life when, when you're distressed, uh, you, you tend to shut down emotionally and mask your feelings because when you turn yourself towards your parents to get that sort of comfort and security and safety, it's not there for whatever reason. Right, so you become uncomfortable sharing your feelings and uncomfortable with intimacy. And that leads to all kinds of problems with managing uh, difficulties in social relationships, conflict management. Uh, there's emotion, negative emotional outcomes related to not being able to seek support when you need it. That's right. And they talk about uh, rep- repressive coping. It's, it's the tendency to use distraction strategies to keep yourself happy and 
avoid alarming thoughts and feelings, which... Now, those can be adaptive, right? Well, exactly, which yeah. can be uh, great. I mean, everybody uses them to some extent. Right, I right. guess the, the problem is if you're using them in every context and... When you get It kind of blankets your entire life. And that's what the, the researchers sort of thought, that if you're stuck in this avoidant attachment style of interacting, that probably you would be likely to try and distract yourself from the distress that's created when you need support, but you're not comfortable seeking it from your partner. That's it. That's the important part. You need it. You need it. But you're you're not comfortable with intimacy. So you're, you're, finding you're not seeking the support. You're, you're, you're distracting yourself to make yourself feel better. And, and if people do that consciously, if people are sort of purposely trying to cope with the, their negative emotions, that can have some benefits. But it's when it's, what do they call it, implicit. It's when it happens automatically without needing to think about it, without needing to monitor it, that people sort of, I mean, they may not even be aware that's that right. you're feeling you're not, distressed. Well, implicit, you're not aware. And it's also, there's the implicit part of it and there's the pervasive part of it. Right. So regardless of what the context is, yeah. the smallest thing will just lead you to just distract yourself. Well, we've talked about you're this, right? Uncomfortable, I mean, like right through a lot of things in your life. You feel vulnerable and you do everything that you you can unconsciously even to defend yourself from those feelings of vulnerability. In fact, and and when you become really good at it, you don't even notice. Right. So in this particular study, what they do is they look at 63 couples and um what they're trying to figure out is, what they, I guess they hook them up with these skin conductance uh, Right. They measure their stress. Right? They measure their stress through skin conductance, which is, you know, a good physical measure. That's right. how stressed you are. And then um, they look at the reported feelings they have on questionnaires. Mm-hmm. And, and Well, they pick these people. These are couples who had a recent disagreement. That's why they were chosen to be in the study. So they take them into the lab, they hook them up to these electrodes, and they have them talk about their disagreement once they've filled out a bunch of questionnaires about their attachment style and things like that. Right. So, they, so what they did is they looked at people with low attachment avoidance and people with high attachment avoidance. I want to say that in an easier way. You know, is there a better way to say it? I don't think there is. I don't think it's possible. Well, it's, I, I bet it, you can't do it. <laughs> You're going well, to tell people, this long, this long well, detailed no, story uh, to explain. No, it. I think the terminology though people aren't going to be right. understand what that means. Sure, people who are less likely to sort of run away from their feelings, and and people who are more likely to run away from their feelings. Well, that's not bad, right? That's okay. Okay, run away. Let's use that. Sure. Okay. Fight, flight, or freeze. <laughs> so so they, they break them up into these groups, right? Yeah. And what they find is that the people, they were looking at congruence, right? So the, the, they find that the people who were much more likely to run away from their feelings, so this uh, avoidant attachment type right. of person, mm-hmm. these people, um, they were more likely to report positive feelings even when the skin conductance measure was showing that physiologically they they were um, internally upset. Right. So right? that's where there's a their lack of congruence between their physical reactions that shows that their anxiety is, is raised, that their alarm bells are going off, and their outward presentation. They seem to be calm and they're saying, oh, I've, I feel good. good about this. Yeah, this the is things great. are fine. Why? They don't even realize that yeah. they're feeling stressed what, out. What hassle did we just have? Yeah. Well, everything's good. Yeah, We've sorted it all out. Right. So the people who are less likely to run away from their feelings or lower attachment avoidance people. 
Right. Right. They're the ones where, yeah, the skin conductance measures saying that they're internally, they're physiologically upset, mm-hmm. but they're also saying verbally that the words coming out of their mouth match that. They're saying, yeah, I am upset. Right. And then you can deal with it. You know, your partner can be supportive. And then the, you can deal with it. Exactly. The, the problem with what the researchers call repressive coping but what, since we're talking about attachment, and we've talked about attachment over and over again, what uh, Dr. Neufeld might call a high level of defendedness against those vulnerable feelings in the relationship is that they need some support, they don't show that they need support, so they don't get support, so that confirms that they can't rely on anybody else. That's right, and, <laughs> and not only that... It's a but, self-fulfilling prophecy. But the, uh, the other person that's hearing that everything's fine... That's kind of a nice thing to hear uh, from their perspective, in a sense, but in another another way that's kind of confusing for them. Right. Oh, wait a minute. They get mixed messages. They get mixed messages. Mm-hmm. Didn't we just have a problem? Yeah. <laughs> and you're saying everything's How fine. It be fine. Well, part of you is going, well, I'm glad everything's fine for that person. But another part's going, well, it doesn't make really good sense. Mm-hmm. But you're not really, you know, you're going to be hit and miss with whether you're going to actually comfort that person or not. Right. You might assume that there's something wrong, even though they're saying there's nothing wrong. Well, then you might try to comfort them, and they might feel more uncomfortable because that's going to activate their avoidance They'll all over again. They have to face right? it a little bit. Boy, maybe. they really, you know, the, the people who are avoidant really paint themselves into a corner when they need help from their significant other. They really do, and you know, I guess the the important thing for for uh, someone who's getting help, let's say, as part of uh, couple therapy, right, is to 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 look for a therapist that's making you feel secure in that therapeutic setting mm-hmm. so that if you're that avoidant person that your 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 alarms aren't so high that you're continually running away from your feelings because that setting is so secure you're you're able your alarm doesn't go off as high you're able to look at some of these difficult things you're able to give the proper feedback to your partner who's confused right and, and so this is important for you to look for when you go to see a therapist. So a therapist really needs to tread lightly when, when their client is avoidant uh, in their attachment style because as they, develop, as, as they start to develop trust in the therapist, they, their immediate reaction is going to be, whoa, wait a second, this, is, this, this isn't how it's supposed to be. It's not how it's supposed to go. So don't just look for techniques with your therapist. Right. You know, don't just look at what toolbox they have in front of them. Look at, look at what you're feeling. Well, in and that it, session. And it comes back to the idea that your awareness of your own emotions is important if you're going to get the help that you need, if you're going to be able to cope with this day-to-day stresses that come up in your life. Exactly, doctor. Which brings us to our second story. <music> Study number two, suicidal thoughts in adopted versus non-adopted youth. This is a longitudinal study that followed people over 12 years. That's right. eh? There's some uh, researchers out of uh, New York University. And, uh, you know, I thought this one was interesting, too. Uh, I've always, you know, we've we've both dealt with with adoptive adopted kids and parents that have adopted kids. I have several adopted siblings. Yes. And so I, I just thought it was interesting to look look into it a little bit further here. Um, I was looking at the previous studies, you know, the beginning of these articles, they talk about 
what they know as a background to what they're going to be studying and furthering the research on. Right. And some of what they were saying there was adoptive children are at greater risk for adjustment difficulties compared to uh, their non-adoptive peers. And that um, at the same time that there was more similarities than differences, so the effects weren't very strong. So there is some some greater concern there, but the overlap between these groups is, is very high as well. So if you have an adoptive child, doesn't mean necessarily you're going to have more challenges uh, because there's more similarities with non-adoptive kids than there are differences. Mm-hmm. Uh, but still, uh, again, they, they talk about adopted kids are more likely to show externalizing, what they call externalizing difficulties, such like as breaking ADHD. Out, and breaking the rules or acting out. That's right, or not listening to their parents or mm-hmm. what <laughs> people call oppositional defiant disorder and when it's extreme, I guess. Um, so when they look at internalizing symptoms like depression, anxiety, the one, the one I was looking at here was for depression. So when they look at things like internalizing symptoms... so Like depression or anxiety? That's right. They're saying that 18% of adoptive children have depressive diagnoses versus 7% of kids who are not adopted. Okay. So there's a higher incidence of that. Um, what this particular study wanted to look at was not depression per se, but suicidal thinking. Right, and they had a complicated model of how that would progress over time with the idea that uh, after adoption, uh, the the fact of being adopted might lead to increases in depressive symptoms, which would also lead to increases in suicidal thoughts, and that those things would persist over time. Right, and so they looked at this large, large data set, uh, 15 to 20,000 teens in, in different age groups, uh, 12 to 17, and then they looked at kids that they called um, early young adults, 18 to 23, and then young adults, 24 to 29. It was the same people. It, wasn't, it was a longitudinal study, not a cross-section. So right. they followed this same group starting you know, between the ages of 12 to 18, and then every six years they saw them again two more times. Right, and what they found is that there was one, one significant finding that came out that after four years of age, they, they, the adopted kids tend to have higher rates of suicidal thinking. If they're, they're adopted only, after four years of age. That's right. If they're adopted after four years of age, it's, but now the rate is only 1% to 3% higher. So again, it's back to that. There's an awful lot of overlap between the groups. Right. It's a, it's small, a small increase. small difference. It's a small increase. And I guess part, part of what's happening, I think, is there's so many factors that could be involved here. Mm-hmm, right, mm-hmm. and I, I mean, I read this. I read it a couple of times because when I hear adopted versus non-adopted, I think of two groups of people who are separated from their parents, and one group is adopted, and the other group is in foster homes or group homes, and they're not connected to a family. But that was not what this study was was all about. It's really intact families versus children who are adopted by someone outside of the home whether it's a, a f- another family member besides the parents, which they called kin adoption or non-kin adoptions, which are people who, you know, it might be an international adoption, for example. You know, the... the, the Honestly, I, I was a little disappointed about that because I felt like I, I would think that people who are adopted into a family and they're able to start to make those connections and form some new bonds probably would do better than the ones who are shuffled around between foster homes or in, in group homes. Well, no doubt. 
Right. No doubt. Right. So that was what I was hoping to see, but they didn't tease that group they, out. They, they didn't look didn't. at that at all. They didn't. And, you know, because that's the whole interesting thing about adoption in general, mm-hmm. that, you know, you've got a group of kids that um, that they're, the potential for that secure attachment has been disrupted right from the right. beginning. There's a real disruption early on. And or, so, or later on, right, in the case of kids who are adopted later, so who, who maybe could remember more uh, about the, their family of origin. So the assumption there, I would think, is that there's a higher risk for an insecure attachment to, to come out of that. Right. But they Just, didn't talk about attachment in this They didn't talk study. about it that way. But, but it makes sense. And now... Just because there's a higher risk doesn't mean that's what happens. But right. I guess if you've got these situations where it's it's an older child, because mm-hmm. that's what they're talking about here, right? Um, or what they didn't talk about is that foster situation that you were you were referring to, mm-hmm. that where you have multiple sort of injuries, multiple caregivers, to yeah, that attachment. You're continually separated. That's right. Um, and I guess the other thing that would have been interesting too is to think about. If you've had that early um, higher risk for this insecure attachment right. from the adoption, and then your adoptive parents get divorced, mm. now you're kind so of adding another, another. Talk about a recipe for an avoidant attachment style. <laughs> right, I mean, that's time. You, you wouldn't feel safe connecting to someone else because you're expecting the, the important relationships in your life to be disrupted. And I, I think. You know, even though it's a small increase in suicide risk that we're talking about, that there's not huge differences between kids who are adopted versus kids who are staying with their families of origin, attention to that parent-child relationship is is especially important for kids who, who have had that major disruption in their attachments early on. Yeah, I don't think we can underestimate the importance of that message to adoptive parents, that they be aware of the power and responsibility Mm-hmm. They have there, like it's such a powerful thing, uh, the, the meaning for that child. And I think, you know... And, and you know, another thing that comes to mind as you say that, the meaning for the child is their perception of their relationship with you is going to be colored by their history. So despite your best efforts, you may be providing them with everything that they need, both emotionally and physically in terms of their security, but it's their perception of your relationship that's really going to determine whether they feel that security or not. And I feel like it's a different context. So if you have a child who's depressed and has been adopted, one of the thoughts that they may have that is not possible for non-adoptive kids to have is, uh, you know, when you're depressed, you have a lot of uh, irrational thoughts too. Right. It's, so it's not, like you, you said, a it's a pervasive negative profession. view of yourself and others in the world well, and the future. That's it. That's generally if you're depressed, what you're going right. to have, not necessarily, you know, accurate. It's your perception. Right. But you feel it and it, and it does hurt. So, but if you're adopted, the, the, the thought that you can have there that can bring you to another lower level mm-hmm. um, is that originally someone didn't want me. Someone, someone gave me away. Mm-hmm. And so there's this sort of lower level of thought and, and depressive thought that you could have, especially in that state that you're in, right. that makes it a bit more critical. Um, mm. That potentially could make that that secure relationship with the 
adoptive parents sort of an uphill battle for for a child who's feeling that way. And like you say, like a parents that have done everything correctly too. Yeah. Uh, but that perception and like your perception is a little distorted if you're depressed. And so you can definitely go to those depths. It's definitely something, it's something for every parent to watch out for, right? As their kids climb up into adolescence. But that history of the attachment injury is is something that you really have to be alert to that. And it's, again, an adoptive parent might say, I've done everything. There's no reason for you to feel this way. But it really is their perception and perhaps their distorted perception that you need to pay attention to in those circumstances. And professional help might be required to make some changes uh, in, in those perceptions. Okay, and the third paper we're going to talk about is called Boys' Friendships During Adolescence, Intimacy, Desire, and Loss. I read this and I was fascinated. I just could not put the study down. I mean, it's a really interesting study. Well, and it really is a summary of a number of studies, right? This is uh, uh, Niobe Way is a researcher who does a lot of work with adolescents, and she studied boys' friendships for decades. She's a psychologist. And she's sort of summarizing the findings that she's found from all of her work, which really go against the stereotype of boys and their relationships with other boys. Yeah, for sure. And there's so many interesting aspects to this, eh? Like the idea that adult white heterosexual males have the fewest friends of any demographic. Yeah. Right? And yep. and the idea that, um, you know, because that fits the stereotype in a way that, that you know... Of men, the lone cowboy. The lone cowboy. <laughs> and they, that, that men don't need friends or don't, uh, don't have as intimate friends as women do. And some might argue that, uh, well, there's a reason for that. Men and women are just different, and right. men That's are okay with made. that. Yeah. Men are fine with that. Men don't mind. And But this research goes against that. In fact, um, over over the years that they've been studying boys in, in that lab, they found something like 85% of boys really value the intimacy uh, of those close friendships, particularly in early adolescence. When you survey them, they tell you the opposite of what you might think uh, that society is telling us in, in terms of the stereotypes, which is men don't need them, men don't really want them, but the truth is they do. Well, and young boys, you know, early adolescent boys before the age of 15 are not just saying that they want them, they're talk- They're using language like love, I love my best friend, That that is the person who I share my secrets with. They say, in fact, when, when she goes through all She's doing these interviews, and she's been doing them for years and years with, with, uh, with so many boys in the, in these age groups. That the sharing of secrets is the most important part. It's the thing they like best about having a best friend. So, so the three things that jump out from their research that are important in boys' friendships: the number one is that sharing of secrets, uh, uh, talking about their feelings. If you can imagine that for young boys. They talk about the importance of their close friendships for their mental health. They say, I'd go crazy if I couldn't talk to my friends. You know, that's the kind of language they use. I think wacko was what it said in the paper itself. And the third thing that comes out is that 
those friendships sort of drift apart as the kids get older into late adolescence. And despite the fact that they lose those close friendships, and, and like you said, once they become men, you know, men have the fewest friendships of, of any other demographic, they miss those, those connections that they used to have even though they're they're starting to drift apart. You know what's really interesting? She's actually narrowed it down to the age where the, the changes. Yeah. And, you know, up until age fourteen it's it's all good. They're they're similar to girls that way in yeah. terms of being easily and openly ready to talk about need for having close friendships with boys, with, well, the, with kids their own age. And anybody who's been in a house with a sleepover with twelve year old boys. Yeah. Let me tell you, <laughs> it's there. there's lots of gossip going on down <laughs> there's there. There's lots of yeah. it. So, but uh, it's starting at 15, that must be a little bit more gradual than, than that, but she's narrowed it down to Between starting the ages at 15. ages of 15 and 19 is when right? things drift apart. And, That's and, right. So, but it's starting at 15 and slowly you see it where the culture, I guess is what she's saying, takes over and starts to make them feel like it's not okay to do this and they start to worry about being labeled as feminine or, or immature or and, gay and you the see homosexual the sexual label comes out again and again and again and that's it and and you see you see that right you see that that you know if you you want to make fun of a, a friend starting in those ages what do you do you you give them these kind of names that sort of imply they're feminine somehow right and it was interesting i mean the way that she phrases these things is is it really touched me in a way because here I have a son who's approaching that age, right? He's 12 years old and he has a friend that he's, I mean, he's at a sleepover with his friend right now. He has a friend who he has that really tight, close relationship with. The first, and and this only happened this past year in grade seven, this is the first friend I think that he's had where he can totally be himself outside of the house. You know, it's the only time I've seen him with somebody outside of his family just totally be relaxed about not worried about making impressions or anything like that whereas in elementary school there were more concerns about those kinds of things so he's got this really tight relationship and here i'm reading this this study that talks about that his time is running out that his time is running out and they say you know here there's all this stuff that progresses in adolescence there's all this growth and change that's happening but it's also a time of profound loss of those important relationships that's that's really something, eh? And the, but the 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 idea that and it's also so, a time, by the way, when the suicide rate rises. That's for right. Like coincidentally, boys. we don't know that that's directly related. No, but, but that but that is there. Um, but the the idea that self disclosure, um, like just like women, they talk about how important self disclosure is to satisfying to a satisfying relation to an intimate relationship, and to uh, their own mental health, and to their own mental health. It's like you know, the levels of connection that we talk about with, with uh, that Dr. Neufeld uh, talks about, uh, where, you know, the, the first level is just your senses, you know, you're sharing, you're sharing what you see and, and, that, and touching and that kind together, of thing. And doing things proximity. And then the second level is where you're sharing interests. Well, one of the highest levels of connection is secrets and self-disclosure. Being known. And that's exactly what they're talking about here. 
And that's something that, like, the research is showing once boys get in that range, 15 to 19, it slowly starts to seep away. They start to get sucked into those cultural messages that you need to be independent. That's it. Now, it's not that it goes away entirely, though. They switch over to tell it only to girls or to women. Right. Uh, And 75%, I think, they're saying of... Of men confide when they do confide in someone, it's a woman, and usually it's usually their, it's their partner. It's their partner, and that is like there's no diversity there. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> right. if something were to happen to your partner, mm-hmm. uh, you know, whatever way that 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 is, whether through death or divorce or whatever, even when you're together and there's a struggle mm-hmm. that you're not understanding, having trouble in your relationship, you're extremely isolated as a man at that point. Yeah, who do you go to? You know, and when you don't have friends that you can share that, and this is it, and then they talk with. about and talk about also the the idea. Now, I think this came from a different researcher. I'm not sure, but the, the idea that women have face to face relationships and men have shoulder to shoulder relationships. Jeffrey Greer, I think, used those terms. Right. I think that's his name, right? And so that that resonates too, right? We we know that the the this idea of shoulder to shoulder where you're not looking directly at the person. It's just a little safer, a little less uh, 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 having to worry about what feelings are there uh, and a little more um, w- with women where they're, they're okay to look at one another. It's face-to-face. They, ha- they have that greater intimacy, greater comfort with right. sharing secrets even as they get older and, and it doesn't have that same trajectory that it does for boys. It's so interesting to me that that the desire is still there though for those close ties with with other guys and I you know as as those close connections that feeling of being known of being understood are starting to drift apart she's seeing in in interviews that she's doing with these kids as they get older uh, a, a shift in even the language that they're using. That's it's going from using vulnerable words like "I love my friend" or "I feel sad when we're apart" sort of thing to anger and frustration or no emotional language at all by the time the kids are nineteen years old. So they're really are they're they're getting sucked into that stoic idea that in order to be a, a functioning independent man that you shouldn't have these kinds of vulnerable feelings related to your friends. I mean, it's, um, you know, I was talking to some people earlier today about the importance of this research. It actually happened to be two women. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, Who would be open with you? Well, they're well, friends of ours too. You know, they're friends of know ours. Them. But it was interesting because, uh, you know, some of the research that they've done show is showing that having uh, a really intimate friend um, can reduce the incidence of colds, reduce the incidence of fatal coronary uh, disease oh, for physical health. It, it helps you survive impact, the yeah. yeah helps you, help you survive the death of a spouse without losing your vitality or willing, willingness to live. Mm-hmm. Uh, you you have less reduced brain function as you're getting older. Um, so there was all these things, and and you know they looked at each other and they're like, one of them said, "You're you've been a rock to me, and you've helped me." through my life you know wow. just like that yeah uh and you're you know, sitting there in tears in your office that's right. 
So really, it, I mean, it is powerful, powerful stuff. Well, absolutely. Uh, and, and there is a cultural thing to this, yeah. too. That uh, There's a know, huge cultural thing. You know, you in, know in, sexism uh, and, and homophobia are two things that are really preventing. Now, that's, in, that's the interesting thing. You know, if I think about, uh, like, Italians, for instance, right? right? Well, and she's clearly, talking about American boys, right? Right. Um, clearly, there's still homophobia in Italy. There's no doubt about it. Uh, but at the same time, there's a continuum, I guess, because you see men kiss each other. You see them hug each other. They're more physical. They're more willing to be physical in a way that uh, North American men, uh, there, there isn't that leeway. Mm-hmm. Um, and the other thing in the article that they were saying is in Cameroon, for instance, the adults pressure their children to find a best friend almost in the same way that an American parent might pressure to their kid to wife. find a wife for yeah. a husband. You know, <laughs> isn't that funny? Um, so so you know, the, 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 at some level, intuitively, yeah. they're understanding they the know. importance of friendship. They know how important it is. And and here I am reading this paper, and my anxiety level is going up from for my son for both my boys, thinking their time for these close relationships is so limited. And then finally I get to the near the ending where they start to say, well, okay, what can we do? And one of the things that they found that's highly predictive of intimate friendships between boys later on in life, you know, those close, tight, best friend kinds of relationships that we're talking about is if they have at least one parent who gives them the space to talk about what they're thinking and what they're feeling. No doubt. And, you know, the when I was reading uh, the study uh, by Dr. Wei here, it, there was a there was like right at the end of the article. Yeah, it's, I think it's worth repeating. I happened to write it down Please. here. The boys in my study seem to know this, but we as adults seem to have forgotten. If we listen closely, however, to both boys and girls during adolescence, we will begin to remember what we knew all along. What makes us human is our ability to deeply connect with others. And there's no way that we could say it better than that. And that's it for us. You can visit us at familyanatomy.com or email us at info at familyanatomy.com. You can find us on Facebook. You can find us on Twitter and Google+. Plus. If you listen on your iPhone or iPod, you can find us on the podcast app. As usual, we'll leave you with a bit of a tune by Brother Love, and he's over at brotherloverocks.com. Thanks for listening. See you in two weeks. Family Anatomy.com. <laughs> <laughs>